Today's podcast was supported by Audible. Thanks to Audible for supporting the Motley Fool's industry focus. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash fool. That's audible.com slash F-O-O-L. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, April 3rd, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, banking specialist. How's it going, John? It's going great, Gabby. How are you doing? Pretty good. I'm, I'm pumped to have you on the show two, two times in the last two weeks. Oh, lucky you, huh? They are lucky our <laughs> listeners. I'm being facetious, though. I know. Well, they, I'm sure they're so excited to hear more about banks, because that's what we're going to talk about today. Banks. I know it's a surprise, because the title of the episode isn't like industry-focused financials or anything, but, you know, <laughs> thought we'd switch it up again with some more banks. <laughs> the old banking bait-and-switch. Yeah. I've, at least we crack ourselves up, John. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> only us. Only yeah. us. Maybe our moms. Yeah. Oh, my Jokes mom says hi, by the way. <laughs> yeah, my mom says hi. My mom loves Maxfield listeners, just in case you're curious. Um, although she did say you talked a little too quickly on the last episode, and she wants you to slow down so she can hear every word. <laughs> well, I love your mom. She's our most committed listener, and I agree with her that I sometimes talk way too fast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in that case, now that we're done with this small talk, um, let's talk about PNC Bank and shareholder letters. We're going to kind of interweave the two topics. Uh, but let's start with what's going on with PNC Bank in general right now. Um, and the reason that we, we picked PNC Bank to begin with is because after doing that US Bank ep- uh, episode last week, which if you want to link to, I'm more than happy to send you that. And Maxfield finally published that article on on the Richard Davis interview. So if you've emailed me about that, I'm going to email you as soon as the show is over and send that to you. And if anyone else wants that article, I'm also more than happy to email it to you. Our email is industryfocus at fool.com. Winding back, the reason we're talking about PNC Bank is because we talked about how great US Bank Corps um, deficiency ratio is, and PNC Bank has an even better one. Yeah, and if you think about, you know, it, when you're analyzing banks as an investor, there's a couple of statistics that are really, really central that you're going to want to check first. And the efficiency ratio is one of those. And as we talked last week, the efficiency ratio it just tells the percentage of net revenue that is being consumed by operating expenses. And and most banks want to get around 60%. That's what that's what most are targeting right now. Uh, but PNC's uh, efficiency ratio is 52.5%. So what does that mean? That means that and, and so the average bank in its peer group has a 62% efficiency ratio. So what that means is that 10 percentage points more of PNC's revenue is available to pay taxes, cover loan loss provisions, and to drop to the bottom line. So it just has an enormous advantage right out of the chute. Definitely. Um, and the things that make up the efficiency ratio are um, expenses and assets. Uh, PNC has a really or expenses really, and revenue. Rather. Expenses and revenue. Sorry, <laughs> not assets. Thank you. Um, what I was going to say is PNC has the highest revenue as a percent of assets. And my my eyes skipped a line. PNC does have the highest revenue as a percent of assets um, in its class, and it's over one percent, which is great. That's generally what you want to see in banks: is that it's over anything over one percent is gravy. And most banks yeah. are not there yet. And, and so let me let me. I think we kind of mix up some numbers there. So 
their revenue as a percent of assets is 4.92%, which is the highest in its peer group, and its peer group are the really large, kind of too big to fail banks, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, plus other large regional banks. And so that's the largest, with one exception, and that is Capital One. And the reason that Capital One's revenue is so high as, as, as a percentage of assets is because a, large, a very large portion of its loan portfolio consists of credit card loans. And those yield, as everybody knows, a lot more than, say, a home mortgage does. So its revenue as a percentage of assets is, is much, much higher than anybody else. It, well, not much, much higher than anybody else's, but it's the top in its peer group. But then if you translate that over into profitability, right? So that's where you look want to look at that 1.1% return on assets. And that, you know, when you're talking about profitability for banks, there's two measures you want to look at, your return on assets and your return on equity. Your return on assets is basically your unlevered profitability. Your return on equity is your levered profitability. And now here's the interesting things about PNC. And this is one of the reasons that it doesn't pop up a lot, I think, when, when investors are looking for like the top performing banks. It's because the return on equity, the return on common equity last year was 8.58%, which when you're looking for a 10% return on equity, you think like, wow, that's actually like meaningfully below kind of that standard industry benchmark that you want to see. But the reason it's below, as we see with its good return on assets, is just because it's not very levered, which means it's a really safe bank that's still earning a lot of money if, if you look at it on an unlevered basis. Yes. And in my defense, 4.92 is above 1%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so just for the readers or just for the listeners for sake, sometimes I throw a whole bunch of numbers at Gabby as we're preparing for the show. And I'm sure, you know, anybody who listens to the show knows how fast I sometimes talk. Sometimes I'm sure, Gabby, sometimes you're totally overwhelmed by them. No. So um, so just uh, the main takeaways from that little section that we just talked about, though, is that uh, revenue as a percent of assets, you want it to be at 1% or higher for a bank that you're looking at in general. And return on common equity, you generally want it to be above 10%, but not as big a deal for PNC that it's at 8.6 because of how unlevered it is. And that actually gives us a great segue into um, PNC Bank is like Thomas Jefferson, because literally all of its acquisitions are like the Louisiana Purchase, which for our <laughs> listeners who are not as familiar with history, um, which I don't know how many of that there are, um, the Louisiana Purchase bought us a huge segment of the country that was originally owned by France, and we got it for super cheap. And PNC does that all the time. Yeah, I mean, I love that comparison because you know what it shows is that the United States really knows how to work with cycles, right? I mean, if you look at like Louisiana Purchase, they picked it up for like pennies on the dollar because France was like a distressed seller at the time, right? Because they are in the middle of World War with Great Britain. There's the same situation with Alaska. We per we picked it up for pennies on the dollar in a distressed sale from Russia who needed to, to get money at the time. And that's the exact same way. Not only do you want to grow a country, although I think maybe some people would question <laughs> whether or not like the people who are buying and selling things like the Louisiana Purchase actually had title to buy and sell the Louisiana Purchase, but that's neither here nor there. The point being that in the bank industry, if you want to grow, the way to do it is wait till trouble, be, be responsible, be prudent with your lending, then wait till troubled times, and then pick up the, the lenders who are not able to be responsible and prudent uh, when, when, you know, when, when the bubble is inflating. And so you can get them for literally pennies on the dollar, and that is exactly what PNC has done. Yeah. Uh, about, a, about a decade ago, it bought Riggs Bank after it ran into some problems. It bought National City during the financial crisis and more than doubled in size. And then just recently, over the past few years, it picked up about 400 branches from uh, in another acquisition. And these are actually also great purchases because much like Alaska had oil or the Louisiana Purchase had 
really a variety of resources and interesting things in it. Um, the banks that that uh, PNC has been picking up have not been in terribly bad positions. It's not like Bank of America and Countrywide, like that. It's they're much better in general uh, in terms of credit quality after. Yeah, and the big one to to think about that that's a great point. The big one to think about is that national city acquisition that was that happened during the financial crisis. So that was actually forced on national city by the regulators. And not only that, but then uh, PNC went and got billions of dollars worth of money from the TARP program that national city was denied and used that money to actually acquire national city. So it's kind of an interesting kind of subplot to all of that. Definitely. So now that you have a little bit of background on PNC and us gushing over it, uh, let's talk about the shareholder letter. So um, for those of you unfamiliar, the shareholder letter generally appears at the beginning of um, a company's 10K every year. So the 10K is the SEC filing that companies uh, put in at the end of the year that's basically like, this is how our company did for the whole year, and it has all the numbers for the whole year and year-over-year metrics um, and explanations of where they think the company's going, stuff like that. So, pretty important SEC filing in general. And this is just like the very front half of it. Um, Normally, shareholder letters are what you would expect them to be because they're, in theory, written by the CEO, but they're probably written by a media team in conjunction with the CEO, which is full of corporate speak and not very transparent to people reading them. But this was a very interesting shareholder letter because it had less, um, what's a safer word work for, for BS? Um, <laughs> corporate we, jargon. Corporate jargon. <laughs> it had less corporate jargon than the average letter. Um, and one of the, I know that John and I have talked about this quite a bit. Uh, we, we love writing. There was that great writing episode we did over a year ago now. Um, one of the most important things about writing is that you when you write is that you need to be well organized and this was probably one of the best organized shareholder letters that I've ever seen what about you Maxfield yeah I agree I mean I was actually struck by I had never read their, their CEOs a guy named William Dimchek who used to be at JP Morgan uh, Chase for a while and did stuff in their in their investment bank but you know I've read a lot of letters I hadn't read one of his before and so when I when I opened this up last week or a couple of weeks ago I was really surprised at the quality of it and and to to the first thing that struck me to your point Gabby was the the organization of it and you know we I'm a writer I'm an editor you're a writer you're an editor so you know we kind of appreciate these nuances um, and and what I found is that that very first paragraph and this is kind of a tip for people who are, who are interested in improving their writing that very first paragraph in Dimchik's letter just lays out his case, just just to- totally kind of uh, provides a summary conclusion of his case right out of the gate. And what that allows you to do is then to kind of test his perspective, his conclusion relative to the facts that he lays out in the letter. And what that shows is that he's confident enough in PNC's performance that he's willing to lay it out and then have people test what he has to think about, what, what, what he has to say about that. So I think it's a great letter. But the only the other reason that is such a good shareholder letter, in my opinion, was that it does a really good job teasing out this natural tension that bank CEOs and bank executives have between growing aggressively and growing responsibly. You have to grow as a business, and as a bank, it's really easy to grow because all you have to do is just, you know, just jack up your loan volume by reducing your credit standards, 
Uh, and then, but the problem with that is that you then take on these riskier loans, which then in a crisis can uh, subject you to an existential issue, right? But but you still have to grow. So you, so you, so you have to balance those two, those these competing objectives. And I think Dimcheck just does an excellent job in his letter, kind of teasing out those uh, that tension. Yeah, and something else for people who are looking for writing tips. One of the other really impressive things about this letter is that he really keeps in mind who his audience is. So he lays out his his thesis, and then right away he hits all of the really important numbers, and then he lays out his kind of like framework, this his roadmap for where he sees the company going, along with a letter, um, which is just a really great way to lay anything out. But as with all things, we encourage you to think critically about this before we, before we sound like just an ad for William Dumchek and PNC Bank. Um, one of the most important things to do when you read anything written by a company is to look at it with a critical eye, because you have to understand that there's more going on than what they're just saying here. Um, and I think one of the best examples, actually, uh, there's a few examples, but a really interesting example is share repurchases. So um, I'm on page two of the shareholder letter, and it says, In 2016, we returned more than $3 billion in capital to shareholders. Repurchases for the full year totaled 22.8 million common shares for $2.0 billion, and we paid $1.1 billion in common stock dividends. Um, and Maxfield, what is PNC currently valued at? It's like 2.1 buck or something, right? Right, two point one times book. And so the question is, was that a, most people would look at that and be like, was that a really good move actually for them to repurchase shares at two point one book? If they even think to think that, they're like, oh, that's nice. They returned value to the shareholders by buying stock purchases. But the savvy investor would think like, hey, does that actually make sense to buy your stock when it's so expensive? Right. I mean, ideally, when when a company buys back its stock, it wants to buy it back cheap, right? Because that that's the most accretive way, or that that's the way that you you a buyback is accretive to uh, the book value of re- existing sh- or remaining uh, shareholders. But the problem with banks, and so in the kind of in the banking world, you want to buy back your, you know, ideally, you want to, you know, and this is really, this is ideal, right? But in an ideal situation, you want to be buying back your stock at one or less than one times book value, because that means you're, you're basically buying, you know, dollars for 90 cents or 80 cents, depending on what the specific valuation is. And then once you get up to that two times book value, above two times book value, your repurchases actually start to destroy value for the for the remaining shareholders. But here's the problem with that banks run into when it comes to allocating uh, their capital. The, generally, the, the Federal Reserve doesn't want a bank to distribute through dividends more than a third or 40% of their earnings. So that leaves you know two thirds to 60% of their earnings that a bank either has to retain on its balance sheet or some other, in some other way get it off its balance sheet. And the only other way to get that capital off its balance sheet is through share repurchases. So the question is, well, is it still a good idea when there is a high valuation to re- be repurchasing shares as a bank? And the answer is they really don't have a choice because if they retain all that capital on their balance sheet, it will drive down the return on equity and thereby potentially incentivize the executives to reduce their credit standards, to then jack up their loan volume, jack up their revenue, to offset the the kind of the downward pull on their return on equity by all this additional capital that's on their balance sheet. So it's really this, you know, a bank is, in terms of buying back their shares at a high valuation, is it ideal? No. But do, do banks have any other choice? Not really. Yeah. So this is a great example of them 
presenting you with something and they're like, this is positive. And if you think about it a little bit more, you're like, I'm not sure if it's positive. But then when you think about it even more, it turns out it's, you know, net neutral, probably. Um, my next example of this is actually uh, you should read uh, corporate corporate shareholder letters with a grain of salt, because um, one of the things that a lot of banks like to talk about is their uh, corporate responsibility um, and like their their commitment to volunteering and helping the communities that they're in. Um, so if you are with me on the shareholder letter, you've downloaded it from the PNC website. Um, if you flip to page seven, delivering for our communities, there's a whole section on how much volunteerism PNC did in the communities that, that they're in. Um, and I think it's natural for most people to be suspicious of most corporations saying, like, look at all the good things we did. And that's that's a fair thing. Um, because there are complicated factors at play here that you don't really see. And one of the things he actually brings up is that we know is that PNC knows that when their communities thrive, our business thrives. So they're basically saying, we're investing into the community because we know we're going to get a lot back from the community. You know? In a bank, yeah, in, in a bank, when a bank or any company is investing in the community, first of all, that's good and that's an important thing and we should applaud that. Yes. But it, to, kind of to your point, uh, it's, it's not like a bank or a company doesn't get anything from that. And this is what I think about. Whenever I hear you know, people, you know, corporate executives talking about getting back to the community, I, I kind of th- there's a memory from my childhood that, that kind of brings up. So I grew up in a small town in Wyoming, in an agricultural community, and bankers are really important there because that's what allows you to buy farms, right, for a typical person because most people in small towns don't have enough money to just go out and, and buy a farm. So you get to know your bankers pretty well. And what you find in these communities is that the very best bankers, the ones that are able to uh, at base, you know, act as a magnet for the best borrowers in their areas, these bankers are the ones who are the most involved in the community. They sit on the boards of the local hospitals. They are involved at the local schools. They like chair the local Boy, St- Boy Scouts League. They do all of these different things, and they do it basically in, in effect to, to market to the local community. And then the other part of that is that under the laws, uh, under federal re- legislation, specifically is called the Community Reinvestment Act, banks are obligated by federal law to reinvest in their community and to make sure that the deposits that they're collecting aren't then being made and uh, aren't being translated into loans in larger metropolitan areas. So to, to your point, Gabby, there's, there's kind of two things here. First, it's good for business when they invest in the community. So it's not just like, uh, you know, uh, you know, a totally gratuitous thing. And then the second part is that to a certain extent, they don't have a choice to invest in their community. Yeah. So when you see corporations giving themselves a huge pat on the back, like, yes, it is really good that they did these wonderful things. But they're also, A, to some extent required to do it. And B, they're probably going to get something out of it, too. Um and there's some examples in here, and if you want to email me about them, I'm more than happy to chat. So the, the one last thing I wanted to hit before we move on to another topic is that when you're reading through this, and he's, and Dimchek is talking about cycles, here's what he says about where we're at right now. So he talks about, so in 2016, their shareholder return, even though their, their shareholder return over a three-year period ranks at first in its peer group, it's stock in 2016 underperformed its peer group. And so the question is, why? And this is what Dimchik says. He says, to some extent, this was the result of the long-term strategic decisions we made not to pursue short-term revenue opportunities 
that are inconsistent with our risk appetite and to continue to invest in our franchise. So what he's saying there is that right now, where the banking industry is at right now, there are not, they are almost getting into that zone where any additional loan growth right now will come from, will almost out of necessity come from reducing your loan standards. And that is not a good thing, but you know, you don't want to see other banks doing that, but you get the impression from what Dimchek says in his letter that other banks are doing that, but he's claiming that PNC isn't. Now you don't know for sure until like, as, as, as Buffett would say, the water goes out, but you know, it's reassuring that he points this thing out, this, this, this thing out in his letter. Yeah, definitely. And that I, that actually does fit into this general theme that we're discussing of decoding corporate corporate speak, which is he's not trying to hide anything here, but because of the way these letters are written, sometimes they say something and the meaning is a little obscured. So actually, I don't know if you guys can see this. I guess you can only see it if you're watching the video. Um, I go through and I write down what each section actually means. So it ends up the whole like eight letter or eight page letter ends up being something like, three paragraphs worth of sentences of like what they actually mean when they say something. Um, because sometimes it's not even a, ne- a negative thing. It's just them having to use corporate speak that John just decoded that right there. So there is um, one other thing that I found really interesting that they presented as like a, as a positive thing that they're one of the things that they're driving at. Um, which is that they're kind of they're interested in growing their consumer loans, but they're interested in growing it in kind of surprising categories. For me, as someone who's familiar with it, with with the industry and the economic like layout that we have right now, which is they're interested in growing uh, credit cards, student credit cards, and auto lending, which is an interesting set of things to be interested in growing for your consumer lending, especially auto lending, which is pretty widely considered to be a, about to be a bubble right now. So it's it's interesting that they're like, I would like we want to grow this. What do you think yeah, about that? I, you, what I think is so interesting about that is that it's juxtaposed against you know this other this all this other conversation about responsible growth. And then when he talks about kind of one of the elements of their growth strategy going forward and talking about getting. Uh, a deeper concentration in consumer loans and specifically credit cards and, and auto finance, it does certainly present itself as an interesting juxtaposition. What I would say, though, is that you know his argument is that they need to balance out their portfolio, their consumer portfolio relative to their commercial portfolio better. So the question is, is you know, assuming you know, you just have to assume that they're going to um, move into those areas in a responsible way. Um, and if you don't feel comfortable with the management, then then in moving into those areas, then you should, certainly should avoid their stock. Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of one of those things that you should read this as a potential investor and think like, is this a path forward that I agree with? Do I do I think that this is conservative and in line with what the CEO is saying is conservative, or am I just not interested at all? Um, especially with student credit cards, those can get kind of dicey. Although he does mention that he wants to use appropriate disclosures um, and other protections, but um, those tend to have uh, some some more problems than regular credit cards because it's it's a group of people that aren't as experienced and don't have as high financial literacy potentially as other consumers. Um, so I would actually like to take a brief break to thank Audible for supporting our podcast. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more. 
Audiobooks are great to listen to when you are doing chores around the house, commuting, or even just relaxing. For our audience, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com fool and browse their unmatched selection of audio content. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. I've been listening to This Is Your Brain on Parasites by Kathleen McAuliffe. Um, longtime listeners know that I'm a big old nerd and biology is my drug of choice. And this book is great. It's got some drama, it's got some novel ideas, and it's got a whole lot of science. And Audible is great because I get very, very motion sick on the metro if I actually try to read a book. Um, so I get to actually listen to my book instead. And fun fact, Audible has WhisperSync for voice, which lets you switch back and forth between your Kindle and audiobook without losing your place, which is perfect for people who like to switch between the two like me. So thanks, Audible, for making my commute way more bearable. And listeners, you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com fool. Again, that's audible.com fool. Okay, so diving back into the podcast, we've talked a little bit about uh, how PNC is doing generally, um, things to look out for when you're reading shareholder letters. Um, so just a summary, PNC is doing great. When you read shareholder letters, make sure you take a critical eye to it and question everything that you raises even the tiniest little red flag, like a little mole raising a little post-it note of a red flag. That's enough for you to go and check. And if you don't know any words, go and look them up. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, other information that was in this shareholder letter that's interesting. I think we mentioned previously um, they're looking to grow their consumer loan portfolio through credit cards and um, auto lending, but they're also looking at growing in other ways. And one of the most interesting ways is investing in tech and innovation. Yeah. So if you, and if you think about where the bank industry is at right now, <clears throat> there are literally thousands of these so-called fintech firms. These are like smaller technology firms that are trying to creep into the financial financial space. And in order for banks to be able to fend them off and protect their competitive position, in, you know, in the years and decades ahead, they've got to be innovating and investing in their in, in, in the di- digital the digital experience of their customers in order to continue to fend off these these fintech companies. And this is something that William Dimchek talks a lot about in his letter. And there's one thing in particular that he mentions in there that I found really interesting. And it's this conversation about open APIs. And what an API is, is it it, it, it basically, it's an, I, I think it's, I, can't, I don't even know what, the, what it stands for. But what it is, is it allows people on the out, developers on the outside of a bank to automatically tap into the data streams in these banks. And so if you think about like a mint.com or something like that, or the mint app, where it can aggregate information from your bank account, your credit card account, your mortgage, other things like that, it's accessing a lot of that information through an API. And one of the things about APIs is that it, while it allows those banking services to run through third-party apps, what it's doing is it's masking that bank brand behind that third-party app. So it's a really interesting thing. But again, it's kind of like buybacks. Banks have to invest. They have to go down these these routes, even if they could be disruptive to their traditional their traditional businesses. Because in order to survive, and in order to survive the institutional the institutional imperative that's going on in the industry right now, in order to you know survive another day, continue banking in 10, 20, 100 years, they've got to make these investments. Listeners and Maxfield, API stands for Application Program Interface. 
Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but more to your point, uh, one of the things, one of the facts brought up in the shareholder letter is that 60% of PNC's retail customers use non-teller channels for the majority of their transactions. So that's basically mobile apps. Um, so it's really important that they're expanding into this space. And I think that's up from 40% just three years ago. Like that's an incredible growth. Yeah, think about that. 60% of their customers are using non-branch channels for a majority of their transactions. And that's up from 40%. So, you know, a few years from now, it could be 80%. And after that, it could be 90%, 100%. I mean, it just goes to show how, how revolutionary the changes that are going on in the bank industry are right now. Definitely. Um, and one of the things that they have to look at is what are they going to do with the physical branches? And it sounds like PNC has a strategy. They're shifting away from full-service branches to smaller uh to actually even like literally smaller footprint buildings um, with fewer people in them because they don't really need as many like human beings doing doing work, which is which is interesting. And actually, this segues perfectly into our into our next growth opportunity, which is they are interested in growing the middle market without opening their middle market business opportunities without opening any branches. I was joking before the show that whenever you say middle market, it sounds like weird and opaque and it's like it sounds like some sort of business that has something to do with some sort of financial vehicle that that has an acronym that's equally opaque. Um, but it's not. It's just businesses that are somewhere between Five million dollars and one billion dollars because that's a small manageable range, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not like the black market, though. That's for sure. <laughs> no, it's not like the black market. It's not like they're not sitting around doing like credit default swaps or whatever it is. It's it's literally just lending to middle-sized businesses. Um, I just, well, I just it, it, think it, that's funny. Yep. His point on that was great because he's saying like, look, before what we found is that in order to attract these corporate customers, these middle market corporate customers, what we found is that you had to have an established retail branch network in that area. Well, what he's saying in this letter is that they are finding that in order to pursue those markets in specific geographical locations, they actually don't need physical branches, retail branches there anymore. So they're gonna move into Dallas, I think it was Dallas, Kansas City, and Minneapolis, where they don't have physical branch networks, but they're going to start lending there much more aggressively. And so when you think about this and you look at their 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 footprint, I mean, PNC Financial could grow still significantly from where they are today in the future, which is different than those really big banks in the United States, because there's a limit to how much they grow because they've, they're already in so many, so many uh, of these different markets. Definitely. And this also speaks to the um, efficiency ratio that we were talking about earlier. They're keeping expenses down by not opening new branches when they don't need to open new branches. And they're doing that by testing and learning, which is one of the most important things that companies need to do in order to survive. Because if they just cruise along doing exactly what they've been doing for 100 years, it's not going to work out great, especially with how quickly things are changing for companies now. Yeah, and and to that point, there he says in here that they're in the their fourth year of a five-year, $1.2 billion uh, plan to modernize the company's infrastructure and to build out key technological and operational capabilities. And one of the things that he says in that conversation is that to the, in 2017, so the current year, they finally expect those investments just to begin generating net expense savings 
And then he goes on to say that that will help to fund initiatives to enhance innovation and capabilities further. So they are now, the, you know, all these investments that they are making, they are now finally coming to fruition and starting to, to impact the bottom line. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, 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 there's a lot of really good information in the shareholder letter, a lot of really interesting things to think about. Um, and I highly encourage everyone to go ahead and do their own literature review, which is what today essentially was of the of the shareholder letter. Um, and let me know what you actually think of it. And speaking of Maxfield PNC, would you buy it? So I, as maybe I have hinted in the past, I do not. I am not buying any stocks right now. And the reason I'm not buying any stocks right now is because it is my opinion that the market's really high. Now, people are going to say, like, oh, John, you're market timing. That's not what you stand for. And as a general rule at the Motley Fool, that is, that is not what we stand for. However, I just think that we just have this inflation-induced kind of bump up in bank stocks in general. So I'm generally staying away from them right now, looking for better opportunities in the future. However, if you're looking for a good bank stock to put on your watch list to watch in the future, if it, you know, if there is a correction in the market, I think PNC Financial is just a great selection because number one, I think it's got a very, very good CEO, William Demchek, and number two, he's young, he's only 55, which means he could still be around for another decade running the bank, um, and number three, because it's a regional bank and because it, its growth opportunities are so aggressive, are, 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 are so promising. This is a stock that could really do well over a very long period of time. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and also, listeners, I have to do my usual legal disclosure, which is we are not recommending this personally for you. This is just our personal opinion um, because you know it really is up to you. You need to do your own research and think about how this type of investment would fit into your portfolio and whether or not it actually makes sense to you. Um, but I would agree that PNC is definitely an interesting bank to look at and I think that William Demchek is a straight shooter which is not something that I think is frequently said about bank CEOs um, I actually loved there was a section in here where uh, Demchek threw some serious shade on um, on Wells Fargo Wells Fargo remained unnamed basically saying that they uh, have a high commitment to making sure that they're that the people at PNC know what the deal is, and it's not to create fraudulent accounts. Um, also, uh, I realized today that not everyone knows what throwing shade means. It means like casting aspersions on, insulting um, that. So now you can use that cool street slang with your kids. Um, I would love that. Send me a story if you actually if you actually say, I'm throwing some shade on you, kid, because I think that would be hilarious. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think PNC is definitely an interesting stock to research. I'm also not buying stocks right now, so... I'm not going to buy anything because mostly I tapped out my account with that uh, industry focus helps Gabby pick some stocks week that we had a few a few weeks ago. So um, I have no money to buy stocks. Uh, but yeah, so one point that I wanted to finish up with, unless Maxfield, did you have anything else you wanted to say about PNC or shareholder letters in general? No, just just to reiterate the point that I don't recommend people to buy it right now. But I recommend people keep your eye on it, and if a better opportunity comes up, to think about it at that point. Good. My final point is that the other really good thing to look at is conference calls. If you can get your grubby little hands on a conference call, that is great, because it is a question and answer format where analysts in the industry who are very familiar with it are asking pointed questions to, to the executives. It's a good way of knowing whether or not executives know what they're talking about, whether they're bluffing. 
um, like what's going on because it's an exact transcript of everything that everyone has said. Um, conference calls are also a really great place to learn new things because you have these analysts asking these really technical questions with all sorts of new words that you might not know or concepts that you might not be aware of. And every time you see a new one, you just look it up and you add it to your mental toolkit for being able to analyze banks in the future. Um, last point, this is Financial Literacy Month, apparently. I just got a, an email today about it. Uh, so get ready for a financial literacy episode soon. And in the meantime, go out and increase your own financial literacy. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocusatfool.com or by tweeting us at MFIndustryFocus and let us know what you'd like to hear next. Thank you to Heather Horton, today's rad producer, and thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week.